Welcome back to Summer Snooze. This is the first episode, so I don't know why I said welcome back, but um, welcome to the first episode of Summer Snooze, um, the podcast dedicated to helping my beloved girlfriend fall asleep. Um, Speaking of my girlfriend, um, Summer's favorite candy is Airheads. At least it's very high up there. Um, So I thought it would be fun to dedicate the very first episode to a discussion or commentary about Airheads. So let's get right into it. Airheads are a very popular candy in 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 North America, actually. A fun fact, before we get too far, Airheads can only be found in the U.S. They are not sold anywhere else, and all, I think, 18 of those flavors um, exist exclusively in the United States. Airheads were invented August 7th, 1985 by Steve Bruner. In a personal interview, he stated that, unfortunately, he did not personally benefit from the invention. Unfortunately for Steve, before before the candy blew up, he signed away his idea to the Van Mel Company where he, they would own all the rights as well as, this, as well as the profits, while he would become the director of marketing for the company. So, at the time, probably not a bad deal, but compared to the Airhead success today, it's not the best one. And that kind of goes to a discussion about what Airheads is today. Today, Airheads are actually the, the, largest, um, the largest non-chocolate confectionery in the U.S., um, in the North America, actually and is the most successful, by extension. Now, unfortunately for Steve, um, he also um, wasn't the most involved in the process after. Um, however, that drawing that we have, um, not, not the drawing, sorry, the image and the logo of Airheads, namely um, the, the, the balloon man with, the, with the, smiley, the balloon with the smiley face on it, that was actually his personal napkin sketch. So to this day, um, he has had a tremendous impact on the brand, and the, we still use that images, the imaging. He's incredibly proud of his invention, and he's incredibly proud of the uh, state of the candy today. Some, some small fun facts about airheads. Um, when an airhead is created, it's actually not smooth. It's actually this porous um, kind of uh, sort of texture, and it becomes smooth the second it comes into contact with the wrapper. Um, something that has been described by people who manufacture airheads and the candy, when it comes out fresh on the process, it's actually this nice, soft, warm, and it's nice and soft, and it's very warm. And they said that the, the, the fresh airheads blows um, any form of store-bought airhead out of the water. Apparently, the type of the warmth as combined with like the gooiness of it at the time makes it just unbelievably good. And most operators prefer, would prefer um, taking it home fresh or taking a bite on the line. Um, something interesting there. Moving on to something that, that <clears throat> moving on to the van, moving on back to the candy, I guess. The Van Mel company um, that, the, that owns Airheads, still sells Airheads, and it's a privately owned candy conglomerate. Um, is also known for something else. They're also known for manufacturing Mentos, um, the mints, and that was their sort of call to fame. And the Airheads, <coughs> excuse me, easily is the second most popular thing that they manufacture outside the outside the United States. 
At the time, Airheads was actually a partnership. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Airheads was actually a partnership between Vanmel and a company that would be surprising. Um, this company is actually the Lipton Tea Company. Lipton Tea Company, in collaboration with the Van Mill Company, developed a different type of airhead at the time. It was two, they were trying to create two different variants, and they were going to test them. The Lipton Tea Company variant involved the same sort of, ooey, the same sort of uh, airhead material that we enjoy today, that taffy, um, with some sort of wafer on the inside, a wafer material, through, um, through promotional groups and through, small, through uh, focus group testing, it was quickly found that that was not the favored one, and the Van Mel company with Steve Bruner's laugh, uh, Airheads was the chosen winner. And so through partnership with the two companies, the Airheads is now the candy it is today. Airheads today comes in a variety of flavors with cherry, blue raspberry, watermelon, green apple, strawberry, white mystery, orange, grape, strawberry watermelon, mango chili, blue raspberry chili, double mystery, maple, chocolate, Pink Lemonade, Strawberry Kiwi, Birthday Cake, Special Edition White Mystery, Special Edition Burnt Rubber, Cotton Candy, Cotton Candy Bubblegum, Lemon, Fruit Punch, Pear, Citrus, and <clears throat> in just of, in just of November of this month, November of this year, they released four new flavors, which will become Cherry Pineapple Blast, Raspberry Lemonade, Citrus Rush, and Blue Hawaiian, along with more White Mystery Bars. The, Air the Airhead brand absolutely refuses to release any of the details regarding what is the actual flavor in those white mysteries. It's never been revealed, it's a closely guarded secret, and they intend to never reveal the, they ne the flavors of these candies. Airheads are made by taking these long strips um, in a very similar method used to manufacture Play-Doh. So the stretching of these long strips of this um, sort of, uh, how to say, stretching material, I guess. Um, the main ingredient being sugar. Uh, something that is often brought up in, in Airhead promotional materials as well as in the brand like in their brand sort of pride is that they are actually one of the few candies that actually uses taffy um, taffy allows it to be shaped in multiple different ways and and it goes through this sort of conveyor belt so as this, as this taffy goes down the conveyor belt it is mixed in with sugars sweeteners it is thinned it is formed and then eventually it is uh, processed each machine on the process, each machine is able to stir about three thousand pounds of taffy. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, and so in so the, the so Airheads as a whole, I guess, um, is very has very interesting history because it sort of came um, as an accident. Um, Steve Bruner himself um, noticed that this sort of material was available and he didn't quite know exactly what to do with it. But upon sort of tasting it, upon sort of seeing the capabilities of the machine that they had, he came up with this idea and so now we have Airheads. <laughs> um, yeah. So I hope you enjoyed that. I think, um, I really hope you did. And if you're still awake by now, that's great. Um, 
I'm a, I'm a big fan of Airheads too. I don't have too much personal exposure to it. I don't, I don't eat a lot of it, and I do enjoy it when I do get it. Um, so, but I do have a weird story. Um, when I was little, at elementary school, we used to have like the um, the student council would sell candy on the, on the playground, and I one time, um, I had all these savings. I had all my coins in this little purse, and I was so excited because my mom finally let me go out and buy candy. I had about ten dollars in there in that pouch. Um, it was all quarters and dimes and nickels and pennies. Um, but so I walked up to the, to the late, to the, to the, the sixth grader at the time, I think I was only in like second grade or third grade. And, but the thing was, was like, this is like the number one point I think that sort of characterizes the, my way of communicating and that it is rife with miscommunication and that like, <clears throat> I like immediately, like I walk up to her and like, I was like, Hey, like, can I get um, Airheads? Can I get um, Hershey's? I just asked for a bunch of candies because like $10 went a long way. And then like, but then like, she's like, okay, how much money do you have? And I was like, instead of saying that I had about like $10, I was really at the time proud of the fact that I had a, like a, like a, like a, one of those like $1 coins. And I was like, there's a, there's a dollar coin in there. And so she took my whole purse and only gave me a dollar worth of candy. And I was like shocked. I was like, what? And then like, I didn't really know how to handle the situation. So I kind of just took like my, I think I honestly just got like two airheads, two pieces of Hershey's chocolate and like something else. I don't remember all the candy. I do distinctly remember there being airheads. Um, I was just like so sad. Cause I was like, oh my God, what the, what is wrong with me? And like, this is actually something that to this day I'll think about um, because I never actually went back and got my money or my purse back. Um, and I was so sad. And like, I mean, at the time, like in the, in the line, the hustle and bustle, there was a lot of people buying candy. So I can kind of understand like getting lost in the sauce a little bit there. But I like, I really got gypped. Like, I think that is in my head, in my like, in my memory is like the first moment that I was like truly, truly gypped. And like, but it wasn't like the system, right? It wasn't her. It was really me. I like gypped myself. Like, I, 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 instead of mentioning like, oh, I have a cool dollar coin in there. It, I should have just been like, I have $10. Ugh. I'm still so salty about this, honestly. Um, but I guess, I guess like now I know, right? So lesson learned, it's never happened again. Um, but every time I like kind of have a air, like a like an airhead, I'll remember it because like that was really the only candy I, like a dollar could really give me a quantity of. I think they were giving them away for like they were selling them for like ten cents each or something. So I got a I got a few of them, but golly, like I am, <clears throat> I was so upset, I was so salty. Um, I was also just really disappointed because like at the time it took me so long to get that money, and my mom was like my parents were really strict on money too growing up um and so i just like ten dollars was a lot of money like it was a shit ton especially to a second grader i really feel like i like my whole life savings just evaporated so that was just that was unfortunate and really sad but hmm. <laughs> so that was the story of that so that concludes um the airheads portion of this episode um, I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, if you're still awake, stay tuned. If you're not, well, come back, I guess, later. Finish this episode off. 
Um, but I think what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to come back after this break. I'm going to we're going to do some history reading, maybe like a history break, and then we're going to do a couple more things I've got planned. So stay tuned. Um, I'll be right back. And we're back. So the next segment of this podcast is going to be a history section. So this would be the, a great time to you know start settling in, um, get that perfect, comfortable position going, and going to get this party on the road. Today's subject in this history section is going to be focused around a subject that traditionally I've brought up many times to talk you to sleep, but we've never been able to finish or remember. So I thought it only fitting that it come up again. So for the very first episode, we're going to be talking about the Battle of Midway. The Battle of Midway is a very important turning point in history. And I do apologize. I'm going to try and do a lot of this from memory. I'm going to use a couple sources here and there. Um, but for the most part, just bear with me. I might take some pauses to try to remember specific details. But um, So here we go. One of the most important naval batteries in all of time. Um, the Battle of Midway was one of the largest engagements between two fleets in history. It wasn't. Def- it was not the largest fleet assembled that would take the cake with that would, with the Allied invasion at Gallipoli in World War II. Psych, that's a lie. World War One. Um, that was the largest assembly of ships in history. The Battle of Midway does take the take cake for the largest. Um, carrier engagement, as well as one of the most recent, largest engagement in World War II. But why was Midway so important? High-level overview, and I guess this will be a bit of a spoilers, is American won. America won at the Battle of Midway, resulting in the eventual capitulation of the Japanese Imperial Navy. The victory um, was a dramatic turning point, because leading up to that point, the American war in the Pacific was grim. In fact, the whole time period that sort of existed during the battle, up to the Battle of Midway, was a very bad time period for the Allied um, command, the Allied uh, military forces. Because leading up to that point, um, we had Hitler's Wehrmacht just pummeling through Russia, tearing up um, Russian defenses and destroying several key assets um, in Africa. Rommel's army from, from from Nazi Germany was was seizing strategic locations, was pushing British forces back, and was gobbling up key territory. Japan, as well, had already defeated the British and had conquered Hong Kong, the Philippines, Singapore, the Dutch East Indies, and Burma. Further, they were even getting so far as to begin plans for an invasion of Imperial India. So, as a whole, leading up to Midway, it wasn't a good time for the Allied forces, especially um, in the Pacific. The Americans were severely suffering, having just lost, having just received a tremendous blow from um, Pearl Harbor and a, a key, several key assets being lost. Something fun is that the um, is that the USS Arizona is, you know, the ship that we call our, is named after our hometown, our home state, but it was sunk in, it was, it was actually sunk at Pearl Harbor and to this day is leaking oil into the harbor. So what kind of, what, 
led up to the Battle of Midway. This is something that I think is the most fascinating because I think um, the Battle of Midway in and of itself is so fun to talk about. And I think it's so fun to analyze because it also is not just a shift in the war, but was also a shift in psychology a little bit. It was shift in how war was, how the, in strategy really. So leading up to the Battle of Midway, Japan had very much focused on the defense of the home islands. Um, all of all key assets were distributed in such a way that they would have islands with with heavy bunkers and anti-aircraft guns and basically trying to form this impenetrable barrier across basically the entire Pacific. So they wanted to sort of push, they wanted to keep America outside of the spheres of influence and sort of maintain their dominance in specific regions. They prided themselves in this belief that the Japanese home islands were impregnable, that they couldn't be breached, they couldn't be attacked, that that American forces couldn't ever reach the emperor. That was a huge point of pride. Further, Japanese psychology up to that point has also been characterized by historians to be something called the victory disease. This victory disease is something that is studied extensively now throughout history, not just for the Japanese, but through other um famous generals and other famous commanders because what the victory disease is is this sense that you can't lose that this sense of after winning against insurmountable odds and after winning so consistently that the possibility of defeat is remote this sort of echo chamber of we only win we can't lose um is extremely present in the japanese high command and for good reason. They had very good reason to. They beat Russia in an engagement, the first Asiatic nation to defeat a, a Western European power was insane. It really, it really rocked the entire Western world that the Japanese Navy could so handily defeat the Russian Navy only in the, in the, 18th, in the 1800s. Further, their gains in, North, in Korea, Manchuria, China and all these other islands I described previously were all swift and relatively decisive victories. Um, However, there was also significant um, resistance put up by each individual nation. But even so, and even engagements with with small engagements with American um, forces, they consistently won, or at least they could mark every engagement as a victory. And just going on so far as to talk about this, like even the Japanese high command walking away from Midway, even though to us in this present day consider this a, a, a defeat, the Japanese military actually labeled it a victory. That is just how profound, that's just how, I guess, infected they were with this victory disease. So leading up to this victory, with, with this victory disease in mind and leading up with this like strategic defense in mind, why would Japan launch one of the largest fleets that they personally assembled into a direct engagement with the American Navy? It doesn't make any sense. It's outside of their strategy. It's outside of their mentality. It's outside of their sort of mentality. And, it's out, and it sort of defeats the whole purpose of building such a powerful defensive network. It's because of something called the Doolittle Raid. This is something that is fascinating to me because it takes, it is audacious to say the least. And so on April 18th, 1942, 16 B-25 bombers 
um, with a total of 80 volunteers commanded by Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle, um, took off and flew directly towards Tokyo, Nagoya, and Yokohama. Yokohama. Every single bomber reached their target successfully and with little Japanese response, successfully bombed portions of those cities. Unfortunately, um, 15 of these paid planes would crash. Um, 15 of them specifically crashed and were abandoned in China. Um, a few crashed, one crashed in Russia and the rest um, and, a, and a few of them, and I think two of them crashed in Japan. Um, specifically, the, the specific outcomes of this was that the Japanese would eventually execute over 250,000 Chinese people um, for aiding the Americans in their escape from China. Um, those that were those that fell in Japan were all executed, and about 71 came home. So, eventually came home. So, of the 80, 71 came home. Now, this single raid changed everything. It really did. The raid in and of itself did almost nothing. Um, they didn't he hit any strategic factories. They didn't blow up anything of importance, but they did deeply embarrass the Japanese military infrastructure. Everybody from the bottom to the top was deeply embarrassed. In fact, they had all bragged and it's, there's very there's several quotes available on the internet that you can look up but like the but all the, the entire japanese high command would consistently brag to the emperor that like the, the islands were not were impregnable that they were safe and that the americans were far away and so this humiliation immediately prompted admiral yamamoto to sort of develop this new strategy for for a major engagement that would win back this sort of japanese um sense of pride this victory, this ultimate victory. And so that precipitated into the Battle of Midway. So let's do a quick recap before we get back into it. The Japanese plan is this, create a defensive perimeter to guard their new holdings in Southeast Asia and in those south, and in those holdings are their crucial routes to oil, resources, and of course, just new territories. So Japan is on the defense, but now what's changing is they're on the offense. They want to now win a decisive battle against the American fleet. And this is important to know this big overall picture, because if Japan doesn't succeed in this decisive battle, it's over. The American industrial complex is so much more developed. They have access to resources far beyond what Japan can offer. And a war of attrition, unless sufficiently sort of guarded against, if the Japanese Navy can maintain their numbers, their strength, and their experience, most, uh, to any strategist, would, uh, would understand the Japanese would have a hard time. Uh, however, if a defense perimeter was truly strong enough, if it was fortified enough and it was robust, then the American Navy and the American government could potentially sue for peace too. So once again, defensive perimeter, and it is now changing into a movement towards a decisive battle.
to talk in discussion about the battle itself, there are a lot of details that we could go into. We could talk about the specific dive bombers that did the specific that managed to secure crucial victories. But I think the most important thing to know, I guess the most important thing to sort of understand is the, the losses that were incurred as well as why the losses happened. A crucial um, discovery was made right before the Battle of Midway. And that was by a code-breaking team on the American, on the American Navy side. They had cracked the Imperial Navy's, and when I say Imperial Navy, I mean the Japanese Navy, the Imperial Navy's code, secret code. The Americans knew exactly where the carrier groups were. They knew exactly what the carrier groups were comprised of. And they also knew exactly, um, all, they were able to intercept all logistical communications between um, military groups within the Japanese Navy. And so that's a huge, huge deal. And with that kind of information, Admiral Nimitz was able to thus position his carrier groups and his strike force in specific ways. But at the same time, I think it gives, we need to give credit to Admiral Nimitz because after Pearl Harbor, the Navy that he was left with, we would laugh at the idea of what Navy he had. He only had light carriers. He didn't have any battleships. He had only cruisers. His Navy was in real no match for what the entire might of the Imperial Navy had offered. And in fact, a lot of historians will agree that the Japanese Navy, if you factor in experience and you factor in size and you factor in innovations and torpedo technology, was definitely could be was definitely the most dominant navy on the planet at the time. They could even argue that it was more dominant than the British, because if you consider the British navy, it was so spread out. So we have the what's what's left over of the American navy going against the mighty Japanese navy. Admiral Yamamoto of the Japanese navy makes several um, miscalculations. He basically. And this could be argued against, and I'm more than willing to accept that. But as a generalization, he put all of his eggs in the wrong basket. He positioned all of his carriers in one battle group, which is a huge mistake. Um, and he also split up his, his split up his forces. One of his forces would go off to Alaska to serve as an initial distraction um, and to sort of draw divert American attention. Admiral Nimitz, in response to that group, <laughs> did nothing. But the Japanese, that Japanese strike force did manage to take two Alaskan Islands outposts, which is the only recorded history, only recorded incident of American soil being taken by a foreign power. And with that, um, that remains, that re the remaining groups fighting in the, in the conflict at Midway, um, when they clashed, it was a very, very short yet long battle. When I say short, I mean that so much happened at one time and such a little time, period of time that had such a tremendous implication on the rest of the battle, but basically had ended it. In just minutes, Japan lost two uh, entire aircraft carriers. And Americans also suffered the loss of the carrier Lexington and the Yorktown was damaged. But the Japanese carrier Shokaku um, ended up being heavily damaged and the Zukaiku also lost most of its aircraft to American airmen. And so in the 
in the ending of the war, when the smoke kind of clears, I won't go into detail about every single moment of it, because there's there are actually a lot of heroes that showed here, right? A lot of, there's some very specific dive bombers who are credited with the actual explosions that caused these, that, that absolutely destroyed these, these ships. Um, but in the end, Yamamoto lost his entire carrier fleet. That was it. The only remaining carrier fleets in the entire Japanese Navy were two light carriers that weren't present in the battle. And these two light carriers are only reserved for scouting missions. They were definitely not DBUs in carrier-based engagements against any other fleet. The Japanese also lost a few battleships and a few, and a few cruisers. This kind of loss was so tremendous that every battle after Midway would be, in essence, Japan responding to an American action. America would engage at an island, and Japan would respond. And this starts the process that, ever, that most, I think, is taught very often in history classes of American island hopping. They would jump from island to island. They would surround islands, starve it out, or shell it out, move on to the next. And they would spread along the Japan's defensive perimeter. So like a series of dominoes, the network that Japan had worked so hard to build had, fought, had fallen. So the Battle of Midway is important because that is one of the most obvious and clear turning points of any sort of, of any sort of battle. Ever since that moment, the Japanese Imperial Navy couldn't shoulder another engagement. They also couldn't hold on to any islands. And so basically with that and with that, Japan had to accept a total defeat. Because without naval control, Japan was oil starved. They couldn't get any other resources. They couldn't they couldn't ship across, they couldn't ship coal to the mainland, they couldn't ship oil to the mainland. Rubber was evaporated. You can't run tanks without without rubber and oil. And so the entire imperial army would come crashing to a halt or grinding to a halt. It's culturally significant too, because it was also it, it, it demonstrated two things. Once again, going back to the victory disease, it just demonstrated the sort of resilience of this disease. Japan didn't go home thinking that like this was a loss. In fact, they, 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 in the TV broadcasts, in the newspapers, they print out a tremendous victory, emphasizing the losses that the Americans had suffered. And furthermore, those people who served, and then people will ask, like, what happened to the people who survived? What happened to the soldier, to the men who came home from the war, from that battle? That's a really good question. Short answer is I'm not sure. Long answer is a lot of them were filtered away. They were repositioned away from the homeland. They were sent into sort of these like they were sent into positions where they couldn't do a lot of free speech or, or talking or communicating. Um, Immediately, um, all the surviving fighter pilots were transferred to training centers where they would train. And so, essentially, Japan refused to acknowledge the defeat and to learn from their actions. So, that's an interesting sort of cultural standpoint. That victory disease kind of hits like this interesting, like live or die, and it definitely decided to live. And it sort of kept going in the imperial army and the imperial military structure because. They still were, they were very disillusioned with what was happening. As America took more and more islands, they still were disillusioned with the idea that 
they were still winning. And that wouldn't really happen until the bombs dropped. And even when the bombs dropped and the, and the emperor was ready to sign, there was an attempted coup. And so that goes on and we could talk about that further as well. But that is in essence the Battle of Midway. Um, tremendous Japanese losses combined with a dashing American victory, um, all precipitated by a raid that was meant to re-sort of invoke or sort of stir up American morale. Um, at the same time, it had a tremendous psychological effect on the Japanese. On the Japanese. I really hope that you enjoyed listening to this. Um, I'm really excited about the future podcast that I've got planned. Um, and if you're still awake, yippee, yippee, um, I hope, I hope, uh, I hope things are going well. I hope you're nice and warm and cuddled up. So that's all for this podcast. I'm going to put the rest of the, I'm going to, I'm going to structure these segments similarly. I'm going to have one interesting thing followed by some boring history. So you actually fall asleep because the root cause, I mean, the root cause, the, the intended purpose of this is to help you fall asleep because it's summer snooze all right this concludes our first episode of summer snooze uh stay tuned next time um for the next episode okay i love you bye-bye